While you're listening, go to arcpodnet.com slash members and support our efforts. Let's get to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 184. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my special guest co-host, Ed Gonzalez-Tennant. Today we talk about how you can get started using QGIS. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, everybody. Paul is still playing around in the desert in Saudi Arabia. Hopefully he's doing well over there. Uh, haven't heard a ton from him just like last time, but that's okay. He's he's working hard and, and uh, hopefully having a good time and hopefully finding a lot of good stuff at the same time. Really looking forward to talking to him when he gets back about this project that he's been on. But for now, we have back on Ed Gonzalez-Tenant again as a guest co-host. How's it going, Ed? Great. Thanks for having me yet again. Yeah, no worries. Well, last time, and I can't remember if we talked about it on the show or if we talked about it <laughs> just in planning for the show, but you have some resources around QJS and teaching people how to use QJS and, and you teach your students that. Again, you have some resources that we will link to in the show notes so you can kind of follow along there if you want to by, by just looking down at your device and, and clicking into the show notes. You can see that stuff. And we're also going to keep this episode a little bit shorter than normal just because it's a, it's very it's going to be, you know, I'm not going to say very technical. I don't want to make this sound like it's hard, but this is kind of a guide and I want people to be able to see this episode as something they can follow if they want to start using QJS and how to get started with that. So why don't you give us a a quick start about just like briefly what QGIS is, you know, maybe, maybe kind of as a, as a, as a piece of software, not like a GIS, but just like not really an origin story, but you know, a little bit about QGIS. Well, QGIS saw a movie in Queens, New York with its parents. And then when they walked down the alley after, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, there's your origin story for QGIS. Nice. It's the Batman nice. of GIS software. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> there you um, go. No, yeah. So, yeah, QGIS, I would say, and some folks may have heard of it years ago when it was called Quantum GIS. So that's where the Q comes from. Mm -hmm. But it is basically, I would say, at this point, it is the most popular free and open source geographic information system available. And it's very easy to get, right? Like, any other, like most open source software, in this case, you go mm -hmm. to the, the main website, which is qgis.org. Very easy to remember. And right on that main page, you're going to see a button that says download now. And what's mm -hmm. I think really cool about QGIS is that, you know, when you, when you click that download now button, it doesn't matter what operating system you're using, you're going to be able to install QGIS natively on that operating system, whether that's a Macintosh or Windows or even one of the many flavors of Unix or Linux, sorry, that's out there like uh, Ubuntu that I think a lot of people use. So mm -hmm. it's, it's really kind of an effortless install. You click that download button. And then it's going to usually auto detect what operating system you have, and it's going to present the instructions about how to install it. And it's usually like a one click installer that you download or interact with, and then it just adds it into your system. Okay. Now, before we get too far, 
You mentioned that this was one of the most popular open source GIS tools out there. You know what? I don't think I know because I'm not in this space really. I use QGIS and it works, so I don't really like seek around for other alternatives. And I don't really, I don't use Esri products uh, in my small company just because, you know, they're too expensive and, and they're not really that necessary, to be honest with you, for what I need to do. Now, just so people know what else is out there, can you think of any other open source GIS products on the market off the top of your head? So, yeah, there are a couple, and actually many of them get integrated into QGIS. So uh, when I was an undergrad many, many years ago, the University of Arkansas, this would be the early 2000s, they actually had a course in GRASS GIS. And so GRASS, G-R-A-S-S, it stands for something like Geographic Resources Analysis Support System, Mm -hmm. I think. And that's another open source I, I don't know that it always was, mm. but it, it certainly is now. The cool thing is, you know, a lot of people who may have learned GIS back in the 90s or even the early aughts might have encountered coursework with this. It certainly was used by like academics and, and like government agencies. You know, the cool thing is if if you're familiar with those tools or that system, it's actually been integrated into QGIS. Nice. I would say the the other one that springs to mind for me is, and I hope I pronounced this correct, it's Saga or Saga, S-A-G-A. Okay. That's another open source. I believe it's open source. I mean, you can download it and install it anyway. Geographic Information System. And it, well, actually, that's more like a geospatial analysis suite of tools. Hmm. But again, that is can be integrated into QGIS. So, I mean, I'm going to sound like I'm on a soapbox for QGIS probably this whole episode. (laughs) And I guess in some ways I am. I I, I believe in it a lot and I do do pretty much all my GIS work with it now. But this is one of the cool things about open source software. We've talked about three now, but they all integrate with each other. And so Mm -hmm. if you've learned or worked with one, you can move into, you know, QGIS pretty easily. And the other one I should mention although I will confess I have not yet started to work with it, is R, which, you know, people know as the statistics package. But it also has very robust geographic and spatial analysis tools built into it as well. Now, R and QGIS, I don't think they, they integrate in any direct way. And of course, R is much more of a, you know, you've got to kind of code to make that work. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping to... And you've already mentioned, you know, I have a a YouTube series about working with QGIS for archaeology. I hope to, over the next year or two, get more familiar with R and maybe try to provide a series of tutorials for that. Obviously, like our sort of sibling disciplines in anthropology, like biological anthropology, which obviously uses statistics a lot, as does, you know, a good number of archaeologists. They, I think, have made further inroads into incorporating R as a subdiscipline, although, again, There are lots of archaeologists who make their R and QGIS packages or plugins, you know, what would kind of be extensions in the Esri universe or ecosystem. They make them freely available out there. So I would say Uh those are probably the four most common open source slash free GIS programs that an archaeologist would be likely to encounter. I'm sure there are other ones, but those are the ones that spring to mind for me. Yeah, I think now that we're talking about this, I remember grass and I'm pretty sure in my grad school I used and I might be getting this wrong because I'm pretty sure it's the only time I ever used it. 
what at the University of Georgia back in what 2010 was Surfer. I mean, so I think Surfer actually, I, I actually I downloaded that recently because I was working with some remotely sensed data. I just kind of wanted to test its tools. I do think Surfer is paid software, though. Is it okay? Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I wasn't sure. So, they just had it on um, computers. I think it's like Surfer 3D. <laughs> okay. But, um, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think you can get like a free trial, and they're friendly to academics. Sure. You know, like they might have uh, academic pricing or even free. But obviously, not everybody is an academic and can do that. So, indeed, indeed. So you mentioned the operating systems that QJS can be downloaded on, which is, I mean, for the most part, all of them that people routinely use. Are there any other system requirements that you can think of for someone downloading this? Like they're on like a school laptop or something like that or, or what have you? Are there, is there anything? Because people typically think of GAS as a pretty resource intensive thing. And in fact, I still think of offices that I've worked for, CRM companies, where the most powerful computers in the entire building are in the GIS department. <laughs> but what about QGIS's requirements as far as that goes? So yes, I would say that the system requirements for QGIS are going to be less than Esri. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want this to be an anti-Esri sure. slash pro QGIS episode either. I think we'll talk later or at some point. I think it's important to be familiar with both ecosystems, particularly if you want a career doing GIS and archaeology. Right. But obviously, Esri, you know, is is shifting. You know, a lot of us learned like ArcGIS desktop. That's what I'm still most familiar with. But in another two or three years, that goes away. Mm-hmm. And so most students now, I think, are using ArcGIS Pro. And, you know, that's going to be a forced switch for any Esri users. And, you know, I think you can find people on both sides of the fence as to whether or not that's a good or bad thing. But certainly ArcGIS Desktop was a very resource intensive program. I think a lot of us felt like it was a sort of program where they kept adding to, but not necessarily streamlining. And so it became increasingly clunky. And I think everybody, student, somebody who teaches GIS, somebody who uses GIS, if you had, you know, any experience with Esri, you became very familiar with it crashing. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I think it's, it's probably spawned a whole, I don't know, like a whole comedic industry in geospatial circles about Esri crashing. Yeah. So QGIS is certainly, in my experience, far more stable. It is, mm-hmm. I think, a much more lightweight program. You know, like a lot of open source software, it's got an active developer community. And I think in some ways that, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, I, I guess like usually too many cooks in a kitchen is a bad thing. But in this case, I think right. having that many cooks in a sort of open source environment actually becomes a very good thing. Okay. For instance, if you had an old computer, you know, and I think a lot of us have experimented with the idea of installing or have, right, installing Linux like Ubuntu on our systems, particularly older computers. One of the reasons we go in that direction with an older machine is because it's far less resource intensive than, say, Windows. Sure. And I would say the same is kind of true for QGIS versus Esri. QGIS is out of the box going to be far less resource intensive and, you know, that's at least one reason why it's going to be more stable. So, you know, when I, I teach this, you know, I, I teach courses in like digital heritage and GIS for archaeology, and I try to always include at least a section in QGIS. And what's really mm-hmm. cool is that's a section where everyone just works on stuff at home because it doesn't matter what computer they own personally, 
maybe a Chromebook might not do it, but that's a different sure. thing altogether. But, you know, most students, I think most students actually own Macs at this point. Oh, yeah. But most students have either a Mac or a Windows machine. They install it. They can do all the stuff anywhere they're, they're taking their laptop. And for the most part, any laptop you buy off the shelf, I would say is going to work for like 90% of the kind of like common archaeological things you would do at GIS, right? Like I'm always thinking like when I'm teaching students, what would you do if you get a job in CRM, whether that's like a private agent or a company or federal agency, you know, what's the Mm -hmm. majority of what you're doing, like inventory and map making and, you know, some basic analysis maybe, but a lot of it's controlling data, making sense of it. And QGIS is going to work with that very robustly, very easily on pretty much any system. Okay. Well, sounds good. All right. Well, I've got some, some other initial startup steps after you've got it installed, but I think we'll talk about that on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Are you listening to this podcast and thinking you'd like to start your own podcast and don't know where to start? Well, Chris Webster, that's me. I'm founder of the APN and I started podcasting back in 2011. You can learn from my years of experience and you can do it at your own pace. Head over to propodcastnow.com and click the learn to podcast image. My six to eight hour self-guided course will take you from show inception to your first episode and you'll learn the tools you need to keep it all going and prevent pod fading. That's a real term. You can have access to the materials for as long as you want. And if you stay in for three months, at least you'll have lifetime access to the graduates Slack team. So you can talk to other people that have taken the course and are managing their own podcasts. Again, head over to propodcastnow.com and click learn to podcast. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 184. And we're talking with Ed Gonzalez Tenen about getting started with QJS. So you've got QJS installed on your system. Where do you go next, right? I mean, obviously, you want to manipulate some data that you're going to bring in or something like that. But as a, a pro QJS user and, and somebody who teaches this, are, are there any, I guess, settings or configurations that you would recommend before someone even decides to bring data into QJS? Any like plugins they need to download or something like that that would help out with how this just works? So, you know, this, this is probably a good I don't know, as good a point as any to plug my, my ArcGIS, sorry, <laughs> my QGIS for archaeology, <laughs> YouTube, it's like a playlist. So if you go to youtube.com slash anthro yeti, that's my uh-huh. alter ego. Nice. I have a whole, uh, it's like 16 videos right now that is basically, it walks you through, it, it assumes no GIS experience and it walks people through getting up and running with QGIS specifically with the intention of doing, I mean, honestly, like 90% or more of cultural resource management work. That was really the point for me Mm. was to create a series of tutorials. And quite frankly, there's probably some in there that most people in CRM might never use as well. Like, you know, people don't get to work with LIDAR as much as they may want to, but I have several videos about working with LIDAR. Nice. So yeah, there, you know, there are a couple 
things that I, I recommend sort of straight out of the, you know, straight after installing it. There's a, you know, a QGIS, you expand it by adding plugins, right? So if you're in an Esri mindset, you get the extensions, right? And if, you know, you're talking dollars and cents, extensions can often cost more than the base Esri software does. Yeah. So in QGIS ecosystem or world, we're talking plugins and there are paid plugins. You know, there are people who mm-hmm. develop plugins and charge for them, but the vast majority of plugins are, are freely developed uh, and available for anyone. And so when you're in QGIS, it's a series of drop down menus. Most people who've used Esri products, particularly ArcGIS Pro with its like ribbon interface, like all Microsoft products <laughs> now, um, you're going to feel yeah. pretty at home in QGIS, right? And so, you know, if you want to access those plugins, there's going to be a drop down menu. And that drop down menu is creatively named plugins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was trying to make that more dramatic, right? But right, yeah, right. You know, it's 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 obvious. It, you you click it, and it'll be like manage and install plugins, and then you can go in there, and you're going to see like a bewildering array of plugins. I mean, hundreds of them. Yeah. But some of the ones that I recommend right out of the uh, the gate would be like uh, Quick Map Services, right? So people who use Esri are familiar with putting base maps in their GIS. You know, and Esri has a whole series of base maps, right? And, and again, like there's a topo and a terrain and satellite, which is like an aerial and, and National Geographic, right? The ones a lot of people have used. Other people, you know, anytime you've, you've, you've gone to maps.google.com, those are base maps. The cool thing is when you install this, and it's one of the first videos, I, it's in one of the first videos that I put up there you mm-hmm. get access to dozens of base maps. You actually get nice. access to all the Esri base maps, all the Google base maps, and like a couple dozen or more other ones, OpenStreetMap and so forth. And I will be honest, and again, you know, I hope nobody from Esri comes after me or no Esri users <laughs> get upset, but I have found the Esri base maps load far faster in QGIS than they do even in uh, Esri products th- themselves. So, okay. you know, and, and it's really neat to watch that, to add that plugin. Once you've done it, you, you understand how this works. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort of like you open a window in QGIS and it's like shopping for extensions, except they're free. <laughs> nice. And so any active plugin that's being maintained by a member of, you know, the user community. And that's not necessarily the core developers of QGIS. You know, this includes just, I I don't know, like random people, but it also includes like archaeologists. I mean, there are archaeologists who are actively creating plugins for QGIS. So if you want to do things like view shed analysis, you're going to probably download a plugin that was actually written and is maintained by an archaeologist. There you go. There you go. I will. I will pause and say, if anybody from Esri is listening to this, we are actively taking sponsorship, and we'll be glad to advertise for you. So there you go. <laughs> well, and I cannot Just in case. stress. Yeah, I cannot <laughs> stress the importance of supporting this podcast to you, Esri. No, um, I can't stress honestly. Like all my students, you know, everywhere I've taught, everywhere I've worked, right? I've done both. I've worked in CRM professionally, and I've taught universities everywhere. 
you, you need to really, I think it's important to be conversant in both Esri and, and something else. I think yeah. uh, students who want to be particularly well positioned to do like geospatial archaeology as either a researcher or a professional, they should really be exploring both of these software ecosystems because mm-hmm. for me personally, I'm in a research environment. If I'm honest, I have the luxury that I can be fully open source. And, you right. know, most of the time, like 90% of what happens in a CRM outfit can be done in QGIS. But, you know, if you know how to do it and you have the extensions and Esri is there and we all know what deadlines mean, they mean something completely different in a professional capacity than they often do in an academic setting. <laughs> you you can't sort of, you know, like, oh, I'm just going to experiment with this for six months until it works. You get, you have to have it done. And I think the the students who are conversant in both ecosystems are, are very well positioned. So, you know, again, yeah, if Esri or Esri users are listening, we're talking about QGIS because it's cool. But I think you become a particularly powerful user if, you, if you're familiar, you know, with both. Yeah, for sure. Helps to diverse, diversify in anything that you're doing, to be honest. Absolutely. That's the maker mentality, yeah. I think. All right. So any other, you, you started with the one and I'm, I'm writing these down in our show notes in case anybody's following along in those. Um, any other plugins you would recommend people download right off the bat or just maybe some of your favorites? Well, I would say one of my, so I have... Yeah, a number of ones that I I use from time to time. Honestly, a lot of times if you're, you know, looking at these plugins and you want something to happen, like I want a view shed analysis, right? You're going to see, and even if you type in view shed into like the plugin search, you're going to see something called visibility analysis. Okay. And that is something that's actually being maintained by an archaeologist and gives you a lot of those spatial analyst functions that you're familiar with in Esri. Okay. Um, And in fact, I can see here, I'm looking at it. I pulled it up on my, my machine. I can see that it was last updated April of this year. Right. So it's it's being maintained. um, And I've used this and, you know, other, what would other ones be? There is a, I think the abbreviation at SCP, but it's the semi-automatic classification plugin, right? The name, you have no idea what it would mean. <laughs> That's um, a catchy title. But yeah, <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, that's the name of my next band. Semi-automatic classification <laughs> plugin. Are you ready to rock? No. Um, <laughs> I mean, are you ready to rock Sentinel 1, 2, and 3 images and Landsat <laughs> oh images? God. Then, you know, and that's what it is. It's, it's a plugin that allows you to, you know, create your logins on, you know, like the European Union websites for the Sentinel imagery or Earth Explorer websites for the U.S. Landsat data, right? Landsat 9 has been launched. We're starting to see data from that. So if you're working in an area where doing N, what is it, NDVI, so natural difference, no, I think ND, natural difference vegetation I index, I might be messing that up. Yeah. But, you know, basically, if you want to look at vegetation and how it's changed, and with some of this data, it now goes back 50 years. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm working in with the U.S. Forest Service in the Ocala National Forest, and we're very interested to see how this 400 plus thousand acre forest has changed. Part of that is it allows us to look at human activity, right, like um, timber mm-hmm. cuts. But it also lets us look at, like, how are things changing from year to year? You know, the climate's changing. 
and we can see that reflected in vegetation. So this plugin, nice. SCP, if you Google, you know, or search for in the plugin, it's semi-automatic classification. It's really cool. It literally allows you to set an area, then you can preview satellite images from all of these different satellite, you know, different satellites that are circling the globe doing various forms of typically multispectral imagery. And you can use it to do all sorts of cool stuff. It can literally, if you're not familiar with uh, satellite imagery, it comes in bands. You combine those bands in different ways to produce things like the sort of real color image, what it looks like a photograph. But you can do infrared, oh, yeah. you can do these other sorts of vegetation indexes. And, you know, a lot of archaeologists have used this around the world to look at land use, environment, so human environment, interaction, and, and so forth. And that's there. And you can literally say, hey, I want to download these X number of images for this area, and I want you to automatically create real world colors and infrared and every, and it just spits it out and adds it to QGIS automatically. That's really cool. And then the other one, I would say the other one I would, I suggest people use is it's this little plugin called QGIS to web, like two, like literally the number two QGIS to web, all one word. And that literally lets you take whatever map document you have open and just export it to a directory. And then you can upload that directory to like your web host. If you don't have a web host, you can do it to GitHub. And then it literally turns your map document into an interactive online map that you can share with anybody anywhere. Nice. That is really sweet. It's really cool. And so like for public outreach, I mean, you know, archaeologists, we have to be careful about what we share, of course. Sure. But the ability to share a map with anyone for free that's interactive, <laughs> I think, is really powerful. I mean, you try to do that with Esri and you're talking about map credits and, you know, constant licensing, uh, you know, paying mm-hmm. for those credits and so forth. And again, if you're in an academic setting or you're in a setting that has a relationship with Esri or you have plenty of money, that's fine. But, you know, I'm always thinking about like the local histor- you know, history society or the small group or the group that's like we can't we can't commit to paying an annual fee for anything. Sure. These are the sorts of tools that I think come into play in those situations. That's really cool. All right. Well, we're going to move on with some steps to go from here. Now that you've got your base maps and your plugins and you're ready to go, we're going to see what the next step is. And I'm guessing it's bringing in your own data. And we'll talk about that on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. What do you use for appointment and task scheduling? I used to constantly move things around in my calendar that were just tasks I needed to do in favor of meetings. Now I let an intelligent AI do that with Motion. In Motion, all I have to do is create tasks with a soft or hard deadline, state how long I think it will take and whether it can be broken up, and Motion does the rest. It puts the task where it's a best fit for me getting it done by the deadline. The scheduler then puts appointments with people wherever they schedule and moves the tasks around them. Support the APN with a little kickback if you sign up and try Motion for free at www www.arcpodnet.com slash motion. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Did you know we have lots of great shows on the Archaeology Podcast Network? 
Head over to arcpodnet.com and you can see all the shows that are currently producing podcasts. Scroll down a bit more and you'll see some great shows from the past that still have great content. Search for your favorite shows on your podcasting app or listen right on the page at arcpodnet.com. Welcome back to episode 184 of the Architect Podcast. And we're wrapping up this discussion on getting started with QJS with Ed Gonzalez Tennant. And on the last segment, we had the system installed. We've got base maps. We've got a couple other cool plugins. Now let's talk about actually bringing data into the system. And I want to start real quick because I, I haven't used it, but I heard about this maybe a year or two ago. I can't remember the exact time frame. But somebody, I don't know if QJS as an organization is even a thing with this being open source, but somebody developed an app for Android called, I think it was Field Notes or something like that it was called, that you could actually use as almost a designed direct input for QJS. Do you know anything about that? And if there's an iOS version <laughs> yet? So I, I do. I'm aware of, of uh, an app and it is, I think, currently only available on Google Play. So that's a problem called right. QField. Oh, QField. You're right. That's it. That's totally it. And QField basically acts as like, I mean, basically like a little mini QGIS sort of integration, sort of like a mini QGIS on your phone or tablet that you can, you know, basically use to collect data in real time, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's basically like having QGIS right there. And they offer uh, integration, right? And so I haven't used this much because I am using open source GNSS, like RTK GNSS receivers that I actually bought from a company in Colorado. And I'm using a different program to interface with it on my phone. And then I just save everything as a shape file. So I, I'm doing something a little different. Okay. Uh, but this is something I'm, I'm interested in. There's certainly been... Mm-hmm. And there is a QGIS organization. You see it at QGIS.org. And every year, and I think it's it's just happened or I think it's just happened or it's about to happen. There is like a user conference. I know the Esri one just happened. Oh, cool. But I yeah. believe there's a QGIS one as well that's pretty much always online. And last year there was a big workshop about QField. And so, you know, it's, you know, obviously I think Esri offers collector I think is what they call it. Yep, that's right. And it's basically right, like have it on your mobile devices. And I think they all support any sort of external antenna that you would, com- you know, connect to your mobile device. So like an RTK GNSS, so you get like, you know, centimeter accuracy in real time. So yeah, QField is something that I have not worked with that much, but I know that there is a lot of energy going into it because a lot of people... I mean, you can imagine if you're in the Esri ecosystem and you're using Collector, you you know, I think you can imagine how attractive it is to make something basically (laughs) like that available to people for low to no cost. I I do think there's like subscription plans to like let you store more data and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. um, I think everyone can use it to a certain degree. And I don't. I haven't looked at this closely to a certain degree for free. Okay. Okay. Now let's talk about data formats. Then uh, I'm curious as to, and this is anybody familiar with GIS. This is going to be a, a pretty pedestrian style question, but just to get it out there, 
obviously you can take in shapefiles. If you're familiar with GIS at all, you know about shapefiles. And that's kind of like the bread and butter of a, of a GIS system. But what other kinds of data sets can you bring into QGIS? And by extension, pretty much any GIS, I'd imagine. But what kind of data sets can you bring in there and then work with as far as maybe file types and stuff like that? So that's, I mean, I that's really important. In fact, like the, you know, if you look at my ArcGIS for, or QGIS, I can't believe I did it. QGIS for Arc <laughs> YouTube playlist. Mm-hmm. You'll see like the first videos install it. The, and then the next two videos are right working with the two most common data models, vector or raster, and talking about that. And what's really cool with QGIS, and partly this is because Esri has made some of their formats, if not open, at least they've right. shared you know that so other people can so yeah the shape file you can use that um, those of you who've added tabular data that have an x and y column you know that that are x and y coordinates northing eastings or whatever mm-hmm. um, you can do sure. that just the same way i mean there's a whole hope right all sorts of different raster layers you know things mm-hmm. use geo reference but also rasters that are produced by esri saga grass and other software you can add geo databases, right? So this is mm-hmm. a proprietary format from Esri. A lot of people, if you work with like federal clients in the US, the federal government, they have specific geo database formats they want their data in. Um, so you can right. at least access that data. Writing to it is is not supported in quite the same way. But you know, if somebody sends you or like a lot of us who go to like state and federal data repositories, it's like you could download the whole state in geodatabase format. It's like, well, okay, thank goodness QGIS reads that because if I don't have Esri, I couldn't read that otherwise. And again, if if QGIS doesn't read like a file geodatabase, and I know I'm getting a little technical, there are different kinds of geodatabases and they exist because they have different capacities and da, 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 da. If you don't know what a geodatabase is, just know you can use it. If you do know what it is and you know the differences between like personal and file and and so forth, know that some can be read with QGIS out of the box. Others might require a plugin, but you can get it up and running. And that's the cool thing about open source. You go to Google, your favorite search engine. I don't know if any sponsor the podcast, DuckDuckGo, we're talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) But, you you know, geodatabase QGIS. And you're going to find a whole host of you know, how to's to, to get that up and running. Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to think of other ones, you know, those are the ones I use most commonly. And so, yeah, I mean, there are other yeah. ones that can be used that I, I haven't even like explored personally because they just don't really come up for us as archeologists. Indeed. And along the lines of, uh, you already mentioned, you know, common exports and, and things that people would accept, you know, sometimes and a lot of times when I started using QGIS just for my small company with a rudimentary knowledge of GIS to begin with, I mean, I took a, a course in grad school and things like that, but I knew enough just to be dangerous. And sometimes all you need to do is produce maps, right? Produce like a like a PDF map or a, a sketch map or something of your site that you can just put into your site record or to your report. Can you talk a little bit about the what is it called? The print templates that they have inside of there. I had a hell of a time trying to figure those out without any like tutorial information and the little widgets and stuff you put in there for the map and the other stuff and and the things that you can do. Do you have any tips or tricks on how to just produce regular maps? Maybe I was even doing it wrong using those templates. I don't really know. But 
some thoughts around that. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, obviously, I think producing maps, that really is, for archaeologists, it is in many ways our bread and butter with GIS. Yeah. Um, and I know that, you know, producing graphics, producing maps, it is like an order of GIS use that a lot of people, particularly like researchers or academics, you know, I say that as one, sort of look down on like, oh, it's so simple, you're just making a map. But it's probably, it's got to be three quarters or more of all archaeological use of GIS, right? Is producing yeah, for, sure. for reports, for public outreach, you name it, no, publications, right? So there is, you know, if you're familiar with Esri, and I'm talking about ArcGIS desktop, but I think it's the same in Pro, you know, you've got sort of the, um, you've got like a map document and a layout view, I believe. Yeah. Or publisher view. I can't remember what it's called. It's like two little tabs that are hidden. Most people don't notice them until they need to. But in QGIS, it does, this is one of the differences between, I think, the two ecosystems, right? You use what's called print layout, mm-hmm. and it operates in a very different way. It's, it's more like if you would think of like the Adobe ecosystem, where like maybe you use Adobe Photoshop to work on images, but then you use, oh, I'm blanking, the, the Adobe program that you use to like lay out a book oh, or something. illustrator yes well illustrator and <laughs> yeah so right so you're using you know if you're in the adobe ecosystem you're used to using it's like design what is it called anyway you're using two yeah. or three programs to manipulate images manipulate vector drawings and then put that all together in a a nice publication even if you're in windows you're still doing it. maybe you're working in you know word and publisher or something else so If you're coming from, you know, a software ecosystem that has multiple programs to handle different things, this is where you'll feel more comfortable in QGIS because it's almost like using a completely different program to create your maps. And I do have a video in that playlist. It's called Creating Maps with QGIS. And then in parentheses, it says Print Layout. And I go through all of the functions of print layout. And honestly, there was a time, you know, I do a lot of contract work, either for state grants or federal grants or even, you know, private agencies or private groups, companies. That's what they're called. (laughs) And (laughs) at one point, sort of mid-report, I remember this for the state. uh, I was doing for the state of Florida because we had a grant for one of our projects. This was years ago. And I say we, I mean, I had this through UCF, uh, University of Central Florida, where I used to work. And so I switched actually halfway through that report preparation, and I was able to mimic perfectly my ArcGIS maps nice, and set them up in a print layout. So now, you know, again, for me, I would say that QGIS can do, you know, probably 90% of what CRM folks need to do out of the box, right? Access mm-hmm. data, symbolized data put it into a map, print those maps out, stick it in a report and a few other things. So yeah, print layout, if you're coming from the from Esri, it's confusing. If you're like, you've never used GIS and you can find a good tutorial, I think it becomes much easier to make sense of that. And so I do have that. It's part of the playlist. We'll, we'll link below or in the description, but yeah. Sure. Okay. Well, speaking of that, we will link to all of this, including your detailed YouTube videos on on doing every single one of the things that we talked about and a heck of a lot more. But 
in the last few minutes of this podcast, is there anything we didn't mention that we just need to get out there for novices? I wouldn't say novices in GIS, but people new to QGIS that you'd like them to know before we end the show. You know, I think maybe the best thing that anybody can say to anyone else about using a new program or a new technology is, and we talked about it last week, but, you know, don't be afraid to F it up. (laughs) Um, Don't be afraid (laughs) to abandon a QGIS map document and start over. Everyone who spent more than one semester or more than a few months using Esri products knows the importance of walking away from something either for a few moments (laughs) or completely and starting from scratch. And I would say, right. You know, give yourself permission to F it up. Right. Okay. Well, that is some really good advice. And again, check out the links in the show notes for all this. It's a lot of really good information and it's really valuable stuff to know. Even if you're not a GAS person, it really helps you to know Especially when you can download something like this and you can play with it for free, you know, you can download those base maps, you can, you know, you can, you can just play around and and have fun with it. And that will allow you as an archaeologist to really understand what your GIS department has to deal with. If you understand how to give them good data and how to play with that kind of stuff. And if you have a common frame of reference over, you know, what you're collecting and, and, and what they're dealing with. I think even from that standpoint, it's good to, to really understand all this. So, you know, it's free. Go go download the thing. Go watch Ed's YouTube videos and, you know, be smarter for it. All right. Well, I think with that, I'm just going to mention one time as this episode is being released, we released a special episode of the CRM Archaeology podcast last week. And it was in response to the young woman who died actually in Louisiana on her very first day of field work. And we don't know if it was heat related, but the heat index was 107. And, you know, it just said she had a sudden medical event. But we recorded a special episode with some professionals in CRM talking about nothing about that company or her circumstance, but talking about knowing your limits, when to say when, you know, knowing And you brought this up, Ed, to me. It's actually admitting that you can fail at something and saying, listen, this is too much for me right now or or this situation or something like that. And I just want to point that out on this podcast because there's a lot of archaeologists and heck, a lot of people that listen to this that might be in a similar situation. It's okay to back away and admit that, you know, you just can't do it and you need to move on to something else or speak up and try to get some assistance from the company you're working for. So I just want to acknowledge that and go find that episode. There's no ads on it. There's no anything. And it's a nice long discussion of us just, just talking about this stuff. So share it with somebody who needs to hear it. I think with that, um, Ed, thank you very much. I don't know if Paul's going to be on next time. We might have you for one more round, <laughs> but we'll, uh, That'd be we'll great. find out. But yeah, indeed. And if you guys are liking these episodes, please send us some feedback. Send, send Ed some love and uh, we'll see what we can talk about next time. If you guys have any suggestions, let us know. We have a lot we can talk about, but we're always happy to take audience suggestions. So with that, I think we'll say goodbye and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. This is Chris Webster, founder of the APN and one of the chief editors. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you want to keep the conversation going and support us along the way, go to arcpodnet.com slash members. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And thanks for listening.